Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 gives us an introduction to the spring and the fall feast of Israel. Uh, so you can see here on this uh, little PowerPoint slide here, this is what where we've uh, covered so far. We've already looked at the spring feast. And you remember, I hope you remember anyway, that in the spring feast, those were all fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ, starting with Passover. You remember Passover uh, was fulfilled in Christ's death. Jesus is the Passover lamb. It was the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And then uh, then you have the, the next feast was unleavened bread. That was uh, representing the, our sins being placed on Jesus in his burial. That was fulfilled in Jesus' burial. And then you had the the Feast of Firstfruits was fulfilled in Christ's resurrection from the dead. He conquered death and, and he conquered the works of Satan. And 50 days later, you have Shavuot, or the, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. Of course, Jesus said that he would send the Comforter, he would send the Holy Spirit, and the, the Holy Spirit did come later after Christ had ascended to heaven. And so the, the coming of the Holy Spirit ushered in the age of the church. And that's why there's, a, I think, a four-month period where there's, there's no feast, no festivals of Israel taking place. Because we're now in this time period there at the top of that slide, the church age. Christ came and ushered, ushered in the, the, the church, if you will. He is the head of the church. And there's coming a time when Jesus said, He will come again, and He will. He will keep His promise. Uh, that day is coming. And so there's there's three fall feasts or autumn feasts there. We've already looked at uh, uh, the first two. Uh, there was uh, what, what, what they might call Rosh Hashanah, then uh, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was uh, the, uh, otherwise called the Day of Atonement. Okay, Those, as we've said, if they were uh, literally fulfilled, the, the spring feast literally fulfilled in Christ's first coming, then then I think it's fairly safe to say, and, and, you, and we sh- I think we should believe this way, hermeneutically speaking, this is the best way to interpret this, that the fall or autumn feast will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. So we've, we see, we've already looked at how God is going to save all of Israel. Uh, that will probably take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So let's look at the third one today, being the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles, which um, has has other names, which you would have seen on that slide there. But let's look what Leviticus has to say. Leviticus uh, chapter twenty three, verse thirty three. That's where we'll start. Verse thirty three. These are the words of the living God, and He says, "Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month." should be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Now notice how long of a period it is. Seven days. It's a week. And remember when we're talking about hermeneutics, just look at me for a moment. When we're, when we're talking about how to interpret this, remember the, the week, all the week feast, feasts are fulfilled in an age. That's significant. We'll, we'll look at that in a moment. Okay? The day feasts were fulfilled in one day. Christ fulfilled them in one day, but 
the week-long feasts will be fulfilled in an age. Well, it was in the spring feast, and it should be as well in the fall feast. All right. So it's a week-long feast. Seven days, it says in verse 34. Now verse 35. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. Remember what that is? This large formal gathering of people coming together to worship. That's a holy convocation. God says you shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. Again, another large formal gathering together. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink, and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of this seventh month, you shall have gathered in the fruit of the land. You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So in other words... You see there in verse 39, they they got the Sabbath rest at the beginning of the feast and at the end, okay? In this time where they come, they come together, they're not to do just ordinary work, but they're to come together to worship God and, and to praise and thank Him. Okay? Now verse 40, you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. That's Tishri. You shall dwell in booths. That's hard to say. These tabernacles, if you will, for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. That's the introduction to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you can also read about it in the book of Numbers if you wish. But this... As, as we just read about, let me just give you some of the general details. We're all together on this. This feast was for one week uh, from Tishri 15 through to Tishri 22. Remember, uh, the, the Jewish calendar doesn't exactly match up with ours. It was that, that time period partway through September, partway through October time period. It has other names. You can see the other names, Booz, Sukkoth, or Sukkot or in gathering. Uh, let me explain why it has these other names. The term tabernacles, you say, uh, how, how do we get the Feast of Tabernacles? Where does that name come? Well, it comes from the Latin Vulgate. And it's best known in, in the non-Jewish circles. The word tabernacles is the transliteration of a Latin word, tabernacula. You can see how they're similar. 
The term booze comes from the Hebrew word sukkoth. Sukkoth. So that's why in our English Bible here we have the word booze coming from that Hebrew word sukkoth. So the Jews, they like that word sukkoth or sukkoth. Uh, the Feast of Ingathering, you say, where, where, where does ingathering come from? Well, it comes from Exodus chapter 23. It also comes from Deuteronomy chapter 16. Uh, in, in those cases, it's referring to the ingathering of crops that was reaped during the autumn or fall harvest. We, we, we see that mentioned here, right? Talking about the bringing of their crops at this time period. It, of course, was a big season of joy. In fact, it was Israel's most beloved feast. This, this was a, a huge deal to the Jews, and it still is today. In fact, there's, there's thousands of Christians from around the world that even go to Jerusalem during this time and, and uh, try to celebrate it with them. Uh, you, you, can, you can even see examples of, you can go on YouTube and find examples of that if you wish, but... Uh, when the Jewish people said that they were actually going to celebrate the feast, everybody in Israel knew that they were referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the feast. You say, why is it called Tabernacles or Booths? Well, if you look at this picture here on the screen, you'll see, you'll see a Jewish family uh, building their booth or their little tabernacle, if you will, and, and they, they'd often do it on top of their house. And you'll see other houses, they, they're, they're starting to build their little booths or tabernacles on top of their houses. So that's why it was called uh, tabernacles or booths. They would build these booths or tabernacles. And they would live in them for that particular week. And they, uh, they had three sides, and we read about uh, this here, that that the sides were made from trees. They would use uh, willow, myrtle, and palm branches, and so they would live in them for that, that week. Why did they do this? What was the purpose of this? Well, it had more than one purpose, but these booths were to be a yearly reminder of God's protection during the wilderness wanderings. You remember the book of Exodus talks about how they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. God freed them from the Egyptians and brought them to this land that he had given to them. But, but during that time, they, you know, they, they didn't have permanent dwelling houses to live in, did they? They did when they got the Canaan, but until then they did not. And so this, this was a yearly reminder of, of God's provision, God's protection what God had done for them, reminding them where they came from, if you will, as well. According to Deuteronomy 16, all people were invited to celebrate. Uh, it was open for others as well, not just, not just for an Israelite. That's significant as we think about the fulfillment of this. How, how is it pointing to Christ? Well, it's not just for Israel. It's for us Gentiles as well, which we'll talk about how, that, how this is fulfilled in a moment. Uh, their joy, by the way, is linked with the anticipated reign of the Messiah. You say, how, how is that? Well, this can be seen in the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms uh, started in Psalm 113, went to Psalm 118. And uh, interestingly enough, you, uh, if you remember Jesus with his disciples, 
Bible says they sang there in the upper room as they were celebrating the feast. Uh, they sang the Hallel Psalms there at the, the Last Supper, if you will, uh, before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this, this is something that, that all uh, good Jews would do, Hallel Psalms going from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And so they were sung during this particular feast. Now, what did they do during this particular week? They didn't just sit around doing nothing. Uh, now, they weren't supposed to do customary work on the first day and the last day, but they apparently they were allowed to work in the, the middle part of the week. So what did they do? Well, there were a lot of things that they were supposed to do. It was a very busy week. Uh, for example, the, uh, we, we know um, that Israel offered 182 sacrifices. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 29. Don't do it now, please. Uh, you say, why so many sacrifices? 182. I mean... That's costly, expensive, takes a lot of time, it's nasty, it's bloody. Why? Well, 70 of the sacrifices were bulls. That's going to be costly. Why 70 bulls? Well, they were offered for the 70 heathen nations. They're not just to think about themselves, they were to think about others. Why, why the other 70? Why 70 heathen nations? Well, the, the, the feast points... I believe, and many other conservative Bible scholars as well, this isn't original with me, uh, believe that this feast is pointing to the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth, where he is going to rule over the nations, not just Israel, but the nations of the world. So I hope you can see that connection there. So they, they were to offer these sacrifices for 70 other nations, little did they realize that, that uh, most of them didn't realize it was all pointing probably to the millennium when Christ would rule over all nations. I'm giving you a PowerPoint slide here of the Jews. Uh, here they're celebrating. Uh, this is something they would do during the feast. Traditionally, Israel uh, would, would, um, the Israelites would, would uh, bind the palm and the myrtle and the willow branches together, and uh, they usually held it in their right hand. You can see many of them holding in the right hand there. And in the left hand, they would hold a citrus fruit. Every day during the feast, the family would gather. They'd uh, march around their little uh, their little tabernacle or, or their booth. Uh, one, they'd do it one time, and they would wave their branches as they would walk around their little booth. On the seventh day, they'd march around their Sukkoth booth seven times. And by the way, the branches and the fruit were waved in six different directions, according to tradition. Six different directions. You say, uh, how do you get six directions? Well, they do north, south, east, west, and they do up, and they would do down. You say, why do they do that? Well, my understanding is why they were doing all six directions is to remind all of the, the ones who were there celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, it was, it, was, it was to remind them that God is everywhere. I don't know about, I don't know about you, but I, I love how God has given Israel and even us today literal pictures, if you will, things, memorials that help us to remember Him and His ways. This is just another example of that, showing that God is everywhere. And then on the eighth day, 
Uh, that was to be a special day. That was a special Sabbath day of rest. They weren't to do just ordinary work, a uh, special day of, of coming together, their large, formal, assembling together meetings. Uh, they had a name for it, Azeret. It was a solemn day that, that would close out the, this last of the feast of Israel. Well, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the the feasts were actually celebrated during Christ's day. When Christ, Jesus Christ, lived on this earth about 2,000 years ago, Israel was still celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's some very interesting things that happened during this time that we we can learn how various portions of Scripture were all pointing to Christ. Let's talk about that. There's two events that I want to focus on that, that took place uh, that were very significant that, that took place during the time of when Christ was here on earth. Number one was the lighting of the temple, and then number two we'll look at in a moment is the ceremony of water. So first of all, let's, let's think about the lighting of the temple. Well, they didn't burn the temple down. That's not what I'm referring to. So you say, well, what's this lighting of the temple? Well, this feast began with the lighting of a giant menorah. Uh, here's a picture of, of a menorah, in case you don't know what that is. It's basically a, you know, a Jewish lampstand. Uh, and so as it would be growing dark, uh, the tradition tells us they would have this flute player, kind of like the Pied Piper, I guess. <laughs> kind of, uh, he, he'd be kind of leading this procession of, peace, uh, of priests and rulers to the temple. It was a very festive parade. They would often uh, even have things like torches and even jugglers uh, doing their thing there. And the people would fill the streets and the courtyards of the temple, they'd, and they would watch this, this parade go to the temple. And it was very significant, the lighting of this huge, or it, many people believe there was more than one, but at least one big golden candelabra or menorah. Now, it's interesting, listen, listen closely to this, because it was on one of the feast days that Jesus actually said in John 8, verse 12, he said this, listen, uh, I think I put it on the screen. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So every time they came in the Feast of Tabernacles, with this huge procession to to light the, the golden candelabras or menorah, hopefully, hopefully, it would cause them to think of the light of the world, who is Jesus. Now, most of them probably missed it. Most of them probably missed it. But Jesus is the light of the world. And our world is in darkness, is it not? And Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. In this context, Jesus is also the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60. (laughs) I don't know if you realize this or not, but even the major and the minor prophets talk about the millennial reign of Christ. It was prophesied a long, long time ago. Now look what Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says in this context, thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Look what what it says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, 
and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. That excites me to think, think how, how that is, is, a, is, is going to be fulfilled in the future, I believe in the millennia, when Christ comes again. But it was prophesied a long, long time ago. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now, why did they celebrate the lighting of the the candelabra or the menorah or the lampstand? Well, if you look at this next PowerPoint slide, hopefully this will help you remember that that in Exodus, God led his people. And and how was his presence manifested as God was leading his people out out of Egypt to the promised land? You remember? There were two ways. In this case, it was... A pillar of cloud. But what about at nighttime? You, you, you don't see clouds in the night, do you? There was a pillar of fire during the nighttime. That was, that was God's leading. And they were to follow wherever that cloud and that fire went. They were to follow. If it stopped, they were supposed to set up camp. God led them. And so they were celebrating what God had done for them in the Exodus every time they were lighting that candelabra. This event reminded Israel of God's protection in the wilderness when God guided them both day and night. Does this event have anything to do with Christ, you say? (laughs) You say, does it have anything to do with Christ? Yes, it points to, as I said, a future millennial reign of Christ. By millennium, I mean 1,000 years. Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth. should be pretty obvious. I'm a premillennialist, okay? I believe that by pre, meaning before, Christ is going to come before the millennium. And uh, all the premillennialists I know believe that there's a literal reign of 1,000 years on this earth where Christ himself will rule. So I think it's pointing to that. And I think Zechariah chapter 14 backs this idea up amongst other scriptures. Look look what it says here. Zechariah 14 verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Now that may not make sense to you, those verses, but... Look at the whole context of chapter 14, which you will in a moment. Don't turn there now. We'll read it in just a moment. But in the context, it's talking about someone coming back and actually setting his feet on the Mount of Olives. I believe that someone's Jesus Christ. He said he would come back. And he will. Now, so that's the uh, the lighting there at the temple. Let's talk about the ceremony of water, because this was also another big event that took place in the tabernacle, or I should say the, the Feast of Tabernacles. So what's, all, what's the ceremony of water about? Well, every morning at sunrise, you'd have this huge group of merrymaking Israelites. They would, uh, they would stop their merrymaking, if you will, and then they would, they would chant 15... Songs of degrees, or 15 songs or psalms of ascent. 
starting with Psalm 120. They would chant these, these. They would say them, if you will, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. From the steps of the women's court, they would have a choir and an orchestra of Levites would lead the congregation in song. Following the singing, the congregation would be led in the responsive readings of Psalm 135 to Psalm 136. And this would continue until morning was announced by the trumpet blowing. There'd be appointed priests who would gather poplar twigs to be set around the altar. Another procession led them to the pool of Shalom there in Jerusalem where they would uh, draw water and they would put it in a golden uh, a vessel of some kind for the water sacrifice, what, what maybe some, some Bibles call libations. Libation is a, is a water sacrifice where they would pour water out. And they would return to the temple, make a circular procession around the altar, praying a prayer that, that came to be known as Hosanna's, uh, which is a prayer for God's blessing, ending each phrase of the prayer with the word Hosanna. You say, what, what Hosanna? What does that mean? <laughs> Hosanna means please save or save now. So they, they'd make this, this prayer of please save or save now as they were walking around the, the altar. And then they would march around the altar one time for the first six days of the feast. And then on the seventh day, they'd march around it seven times. And this was to remind them that people from the nations of the world would come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with them. With the Jewish people, that is. Uh, you see this idea in Zechariah 14, verse 16 on the screen. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, or Sukkoth. You say, well, why is it talking about everyone who survives of all the nations? What's that all about? Well, what happens before the millennium? Well, if you know your Bible prophecy, the, the thing that happens right before the millennium is the Battle of Armageddon, which, by the way, is actually a series of battles. But the, the thing that ends it all is Jesus comes back, and he just utterly destroys, just by speaking, his mouth, from his mouth, utterly destroys everybody who's, who's rallied against him. So that's why it's talking about those who are left. Now, I don't, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot left, frankly. You, you read the whole middle section of the book of Revelation, and there are, there are the bold judgments and trumpet judgments and all these things taking place where, where you see up to sometimes half of the population of earth is destroyed. So I don't think there's going to be a whole lot left coming against Christ, and those who do will be destroyed themselves. So those who are left are going to go into the millennium, and then of those, of course, all Christians coming back from heaven with Jesus will also inhabit the millennium. And so it says that they are the ones, the survivors will go up year after year to worship the king. Who's that? Who's the king? That's King Jesus. They will worship him. Well, then what happened? Well, the priests, they would 
pour the water on the altar while the morning sacrifice was offered. Remember, they had like 182 sacrifices or whatever it was that they had to perform during this particular week. And then on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Bible says in John chapter 7, here it is on the screen, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. That's what Jesus said on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. You read it for yourself in John chapter 7. So this prophecy will have a literal fulfillment when Israel, by the way, a, a spiritually dry place, spiritually dry place, spiritually dry nation, will have their spiritual needs met in Jesus Christ. Then Isaiah chapter 35 predicted this when it says, here's what it says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Any of you been to Israel? Does that sound anything remotely like the area of Jerusalem to you? Grass, reeds, rushes, thirsty ground, springs of water, you know, springs of water. I mean, you don't have to go to, to Jerusalem to know that doesn't sound like Jerusalem today, does it? Just, just go on the internet, look at a book, okay, look at the pictures. Very dry, dusty, rocky, stony place. Not a whole lot growing around there. High elevation. The wilderness, the wilderness of, of Judea is not that far away from, from Jerusalem there. So this obviously hasn't been fulfilled yet. And God, of course, is not a liar. God always does what he says he's going to do. So that means there's a time in the future where that verse is going to happen. That means the whole topography around around Jerusalem is going to change. The topography of Jerusalem has to change for that to take place, and it will, which we'll look at that in just a little bit more in a moment. Zechariah 14 also predicted what Jesus talked about, what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It says in Zechariah 14, verse 8, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea, it shall continue in summer as in winter. Again, that is not happening in Israel right now. <laughs> it's going to be a luscious place. You say, how is that going to happen? Well, we'll, we'll, again, we'll look at that a little bit more in detail in a moment. But first of all, you might be sitting there wondering, okay, what, what does this have to do with me? What, what is the point of this? Is there anything that I can learn at all from the Feast of Tabernacles? Good question. It's not. Remember, it's not just for Israel. There's a point in this. How is it pointing to Christ? What can I learn about Christ and what it means for me? Well, number one, uh, one, one theme that we can learn from the Feast of Tabernacles is that God is our shelter. God is our Sukkoth booth, our tabernacle. Okay? So as, as Israel was 
building these temporary dwellings and living in them for the week, hopefully, hopefully, it was causing them to think, okay, all right, I'm remembering the past, how God provided for my ancestors. Hopefully, it caused them to think how God was providing for them at that moment. And hopefully, as well, it was causing them to look to the future. You and I ought to be looking and trusting in God. God is our shelter. Read the Psalms. You you get that imagery over and over again, don't you? Trust in Him. Why? Because He's trustworthy. He's your shelter. He's your rock. He's your... He's your... Several other imagery used in the book of Psalms. Number two, Christ is the living water. He's the living water, and because of that, our spiritual thirst cannot be quenched with anything other than Jesus Christ. So you wonder why you go and you, you try and you do things and you feel like that never satisfies you and you've got to go get more? You ever wonder why you think, well, man, I'll, I'll be happy if I just, you know, if I go travel, go on a holiday, I'll be happy. Does that satisfy you? No, of course. You, you, you feel like you need to go travel some more, don't you? Or, you know, if I had, if I had this kind of food, I'd be happy. I'd, I'd be satisfied. And you find out later on, no, it doesn't. I need more. Why do people take drugs? Well, one reason they want to escape reality. But the other thing is it, does, it doesn't ultimately satisfy. They've got to have more. Got to have more alcohol, more jumping off cliffs, more bungee jumping, more food, more trips, more money, right? It's, it's always more. It never, ever satisfies. You ever, you ever get caught in that cycle? We all do from time to time. Some of you might be in that cycle right now. You're, you're thinking, well, if I just have this or if I do this, then I will be happy and I'll be satisfied. No, you won't. You will never be satisfied unless you find your your greatest treasure in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, give it a try. Okay? Christ is the living water. He said, drink of him and you'll never thirst again. Now, he wasn't talking literally. He wasn't saying, you know, know, literally try to drink him. That's not the point. But the point is, find your greatest treasure in Jesus Christ and you will find your thirst quenched. John 4, verse 14, Jesus said this, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So not only is Christ the living water, he's also the light of the world. That's another lesson we can learn from the Feast of the Tabernacles. Or, or a theme that we can gather. Remember John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Another theme that we can gather from this, remember coming from John chapter 14, is that Christ is preparing for all believers a permanent home. Not a temporary one, you just set up once a year for a, for a week. No, what kind of home is Jesus preparing, according to John 14? Well, here's what Jesus said. I put it on the screen for you. Jesus, these are, this is Jesus speaking. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Do you believe that? Or do you think Jesus is just talking a bunch of rubbish and nonsense here? My friend, this is the creator of the universe speaking. The creator of the universe says that after he left this earth, he would go and do this. Prepare a room for you if you are a believer. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you have a room in heaven prepared for you by the creator of the universe. Now you just try to... Try, I love trying to meditate upon that truth for a while. It's mind-boggling. It really is. It'll blow you away. You cannot comprehend how nice of a room that is going to be. It's going to be wonderful. It'll be the greatest room you've ever stayed in. And it's not temporary. It's permanent. So those are some themes we can gather from the Feast of Tabernacles. But remember, we've been talking about the spring feast being fulfilled in Christ's first coming. So then the fall or the autumn feast then probably going to be fulfilled in Christ's second coming, which hasn't happened yet. It will, though. So how, how does this look to the future? Okay, Yes, it was supposed to celebrate the past, but it was also looking to the future. It was pointing the Israelites to Christ. At least that's what it was supposed to do. So let's think about the future fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Number one, Bible prophecy, I'll put, I'll put this on the screen here for you, that uh, Bible prophecy tells us that after Christ's return, people from the nations of the world will come up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with the Hebrew people. They're going to do it in Jerusalem, and it will be during the millennium. Because that's the context of Zechariah 14. You say, how do you, know, how do you know that? Well, turn to Zechariah chapter 14, okay? Don't take my word for it, okay? You say, Zechariah, is that in the Bible? No, I'm not pulling your leg. Uh, go to the end of the Minor Prophets, the end of your Old Testament. You will find Zechariah, okay? Almost the last book in your Old Testament, that old covenant that God made with his people, all right? Malachi is the last one, then go right before that to Zechariah, and then turn to the very last chapter, chapter 14. Okay, I want you to see the whole context of some of the verses that I've highlighted for you. Okay? In my Bible, I'm on page 1,292, which probably doesn't match up with yours, but hopefully it's a help anyway. Okay, Zechariah 14. I believe the context is talking about Christ's return and some of the things that will take place after Christ comes back the second time. If you look at the whole context, I think it's pretty clear. So let's, let's see what happens here, all right? Uh, we need to read most of this chapter, all right, to get the idea here, all right? Zechariah 14, verse 1, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. What does that sound like to you? That's the Battle of Armageddon. 
Okay? God's going to gather these people coming against Jerusalem. Look what it says. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. By the way, that's you know where the Mount of Olives is? Well, the very next phrase tells you where it is. It says, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Okay, In other words, it's on the east side of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is still there. Okay, That's where Jesus is going to plant his feet. All right, Look what's going to happen. When he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, verse 4 says, the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountains shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one, and His name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. In other words, you think about verse 10 there, my friends. Okay? the topography of Jerusalem and all around Jerusalem is going to change because that's not the way it is right now. Okay, Around Jerusalem is not a plain. <laughs> all right, It is a very hilly place. Very mountainous place. But God's saying He's going to level the ground around Jerusalem and He's going to raise the city of Jerusalem up. It will be a light to the world. It will be the city set on a hill. And everybody from miles and kilometers around will be able to see it and look at it. Remember and worship Jesus. Okay, look at verse 11. The people shall dwell in it. In it is Jerusalem. And no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. By the way, that's not an atomic bomb. <laughs> All right. I've heard some commentators try to explain it that way. That's not an atomic bomb. All right. That's Jesus just killing them, okay? <laughs> their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet, verse 12 says. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. 
It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. My friend, this is something that will continue on. That's the point. It will be continuous throughout the millennium. So we see after Christ returns here that, that people of all the nations of the world, wh- whoever's left alive, and then the believers that come back with Jesus Christ, they're going to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles with the Hebrew people there in Jerusalem during the millennium. Number two, Jesus Christ is the tabernacle, or in other words, by tabernacle, I just mean he's the dwelling place of God. A tabernacle is is the place where God dwelt. It was his place of special presence and power, if you will. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ dwells the fullness of God. Dwells the fullness of deity, of the Godhead. And God dwells in our midst through Jesus Christ. Now, it may be that Christ will ultimately fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles at His second coming, and I think He will. And then, and then what's going to happen? Well, for all of eternity, after the millennium, there's going to be a literal rest for the earth and all its inhabitants. I think it's significant, the last day, and by the way, the last day of all the seven feasts of Israel is a Sabbath rest. I don't think that was a coincidence. I don't think God put there put that there as some accident. I think the last day being a Sabbath rest represents a day when you and I will no longer struggle and need to work anymore. When ultimate peace, prosperity, a time when, when, when God dwells with us and we get to dwell with God, it will be for all of eternity. So there's a literal rest coming for this earth and all the inhabitants. But at the moment, Romans chapter 8 says, this earth and you and I groan under sin, under the curse of sin. Well, I want us to read about Christ's second coming in the following millennium that takes place right after His coming. So look at uh, Ro- or not Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 19, please. Revelation chapter 19.
Revelation chapter 19 leads us into chapter 20. Here in chapter, the end of chapter 19 talks about Christ's second coming. And then you'll notice chronologically speaking, coming into chapter 20, the very next thing, what does it talk about? It talks about the 1,000-year reign of Christ called the millennium. All right? So if you interpret the Bible literally, which you should, that's the proper hermeneutic, you will have Christ's second coming leading into the millennium, which leads into a new heaven and a new earth, and all what we would call the eternal state. All right, let's look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. By the way, in case you don't know what verse 11 is talking about, that's talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who is faithful and true. In fact, he even called himself that earlier on in the book. Verse 12, his eyes were like, not literally, but like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. You can cross-reference that with John chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Word. Verse 14 says, In the armies in heaven... Who, who's the armies in heaven? That, that's Christians who have died and, and gone to heaven. Okay, All those armies in heaven are the Christians. Notice they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Now out of His mouth, that's Jesus' mouth, goes a sharp sword not literally, but figuratively, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. Who's the beast? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. He's the beast. And then the kings of the earth and the armies gather together to make war against Him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against His army. Then the beast, or the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then, what, what, what happens after that? After Christ's second coming, what happens? Well, here's what happens. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. 
He laid hold of the dragon. Who's that? Well, look at the next phrase. The dragon is that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Let me just stop there for a moment because I I have friends who believe that this is happening right now. That Satan is bound right now. And that the 1,000 years is just figurative. It's not literal. My friends, you, you don't have to look very far. Just look in the mirror. The reality is Satan is not bound right now. And Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And he is accomplishing God's purposes at the moment until God is done with him. And then this will be his doom. Look at verse 3. Look what God does with him. In verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded or died for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. I don't think it's a mistake that God mentions the thousand years several times there. That should be interpreted literally. A literal 1,000 years when Christ will reign on this earth. And if you're a believer, you will get to reign and rule with Him. And if you die before Jesus comes again, you get to be a part of the army that comes back with Jesus at the Battle of Armageddon. How cool will that be, riding on a white horse behind Jesus? Oh, that'll be awesome. Even if you don't like riding horses, it's still going to be fun. It'll be a wonderful, beautiful thing. All right, so that's number two. What else? How else is this fulfilled in the Feast? How is there a future fulfillment in the Feast of Tabernacles? These fall festivals speak of a future time when people will again tabernacle with God. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. God will dwell with His people, and His people will dwell with Him. In fact, in the very next chapter, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, here's what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell, or tabernacle, or tent with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling idea there is he's, he's tabernacle, he's tenting. He's tenting and tabernacling with his people. He's not off on his own, some separate place. You know, like the, like the Greek god Zeus supposedly lived up on Mount Olympus, virtually untouchable, nobody could get to him. No. In the end, when our, when our, our, our sin-cursed bodies and our indwelling sin is gone, God will then dwell with us, those of us who are Christians. 
And if that doesn't get you excited, then your exciter is broken. Okay? <laughs> because that is the ultimate experience. Because God is the best. He's the most beautiful. He's the, he's the wisest. He's the strongest. He's, he's the best in every single way. He's the one whom you should long for. He's the one whom you should want to be with. He's the one whom you should want to know. He's the one whom you should want to see. Above anything else, any other desire or affection you have in your life, that should be number one. And if not, then you're breaking the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all. Well, let me end by asking you a question, essentially. Where are your affections? Where are your affections? I can't answer that for you. But having said that, I, you know, the Bible says by your, your fruit you will know them. I mean, I can, I can look at the fruit in your life, the evidence of grace. I can see how you spend God's money and you spend God's time and how you use God's body that he's put you in. Okay? I, 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 can, I can look at those sort of things and get an idea, but I can't see your heart. God sees your heart. He knows your affections. And you say, why is this so important? Because God says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God cares about your heart. Your heart is to be set on Him. You're to love Him with all your heart. That's the greatest commandment. And so that's why He cares where your treasure is. Where your affections are is where your treasure is. You say, what's the point? God cares about our hearts because... He is uppermost in His affections. Do you understand that? He is uppermost in His affections. He is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. So my friend, here's my exhortation to you coming from Colossians 3.2. Take your affections off yourself. The reality is we worship ourselves. When we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves. As someone has wisely said, there's only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. That's the only two choices. Life is that simple, really. It might be hard to live it out, but that's, that's what it comes down to. That's where the rubber meets the road, pleasing God or pleasing self. And when we please self, we're worshiping ourselves instead of the one who is worthy of all worship, honor, glory, and praise. So my, my friend, check your heart. Search your heart. Ask God to search your heart. See those wicked ways that are in you, and they're, they're there. If you look for them, they're there. And ask God to give you an affection for Him and for heaven and for Christ, which of course is where God and Christ are at the moment. They're everywhere, yes, but you understand, uh, you understand what I'm saying, I hope. So my friend, take your affections off yourself and set your affection in heaven with Christ. My friend, if you're a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ alone at some point in your life, you decided that, you know, I could do all the good works, more good works than anybody has ever done, and, and if, if you believe that your good works are, are just a load of rubbish, and they'll never get you to heaven, and you decided, I need to put my faith in Jesus and only in Jesus, not Jesus plus something else or my good works, it's only Jesus, and that's how I'm going to get to heaven, then my friend... There's coming a day when you will tabernacle and dwell with God, and He will dwell with you. Live for that. But my friend, if you have never put your faith in only Jesus, it's not Jesus plus your baptism or your 
church attendance or other good works or whatever good works you can come up with. You can't do enough good works to get to heaven. In fact, God says your righteousness is like filthy rags. He's not impressed. Okay? You can't do enough to get to heaven. God already did it for you. And you have to believe by faith. My friend, if you've never done that, today can be the day all right, where you put your faith in Jesus alone. And when you do that, you can know for certain that when you die, the Bible says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you believe that? You have to believe it by faith. So my friend, there is great relevance and importance and significance in the Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay? It's not just for Israel. Okay? And so it's important that we realize that all Scripture is profitable. And, and what we see in the Old Testament is promises made in the New Testament, promises being kept. There are some promises that haven't been kept yet, but my friend, Jesus said He is coming again. Do you believe that? Do you believe He's going to keep that promise? Do you believe that there's a 1,000-year reign of Christ? And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you will reign and rule with Him on this earth? My, my friend, do you believe that Jesus is then going to destroy this present earth? He's going to make a new earth, a new heavens? And then, we, then we'll be ushered into the eternal state. But my friend, if you're not a Christian, then you get the next judgment coming in the book of Revelation. The great white throne judgment. And that's a scary moment. That's for all the unbelievers. And they'll stand before the judge of the universe. And he always does what's right. He will dish out justice. And he knows our sin. And, and they will get what they deserve. So my friend, what do we do? We beg and we plead for grace, which is what we do not deserve. Okay, You want what you don't deserve, which is God's grace. You don't want you what you deserve. Because what we all deserve is eternity in the lake of fire. But my friend, you don't have to go there. There's a thing called the millennium. There's a thing called the eternal state. There's a thing called heaven. It's a real place. And God is real. And you and I can dwell with Him for eternity. Do you know that for certain? That the Holy Spirit resides within you, though. If not, today could be the day. All right.